0: I wanted to start by saying thank you for listening as well as for those of you who've been supporting Standard H by way of making purchases on the website. It's funny, I've had several people ask me if I'm a podcast that makes clothes or a clothing brand with a podcast. Though it is most certainly the latter, I'm just happy those of you who have discovered the brand at all, let alone enjoyed the products I make. If you don't mind leaving a review of the show through whatever app you're listening to this on... It will no doubt help others also discover the show, and in turn, the brand. And if I could ask a second favor, maybe tell a friend or two about Standard H. I couldn't be more proud of the community that's evolving, and all of you have been so great, be it through DMs on Instagram or the emails I've received. I'm a huge subscriber of the birds of a feather mentality, and feel the best way to share a good thing is to include my friends. So if you could help share the pod, that would be awesome, and hopefully your friends will enjoy it as well. As always, thank you so much for the support. If you haven't heard episode one of the Standard Age podcast, then let me tell you about my friend Tim Jackson. As owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, Tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry, as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available. I'm talking about Gronfeld, Habring, Kudoki, Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. The staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job, and like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie Accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram, at ContonementCo, that's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O, or visit them at Contonement.co, and use the code STANDARDH in all caps no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get to the show. I first learned about brew watches through Hodinkee, as many of you may have. Former podcast guest James Stacy always seems to know how to get my attention through his words and his photos, and his feature of Jonathan Ferrer's Espresso Machine-inspired chronograph was no exception. A chronograph that times an espresso shot? Now that's something you don't see every day. And same goes for the TV set shape of the Brewmetrics case. Definitely drawing from the 60s and 70s this $395 chronograph and its vintage radio inspired color palette is also nothing if not attention grabbing. And all of this coming from the gentleman I'm speaking to as he sits in the driver's seat of his 2019 Aston Martin V8 Vantage. Jonathan is my kind of guy. He's an East Coaster with a history of riding bikes, listening to the likes of Nirvana and early 2000s pop punk, and he's been the one-man band behind Brew Watches, that is, up until a week before recording this. I'm excited to share his story and certainly appreciate his candor when it comes to his approach to design and decision-making. I think you'll enjoy this one. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to The Standard Age Podcast. So you're in a car.
1: I figured it was appropriate for this conversation.
0: (laughs) Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it is appropriate, and I'm sure, and the acoustics are amazing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, whether it's like lighting for a wrist shot or just like acoustics, we're good in here.
0: Yeah, right? It's like a, it's a, it's a perfect light box for watch shots, for sure. Yep, yep. Yeah, amazing. Well, um, thanks for being a part of the show. You're New York based, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Yes, What's the story there? Are you from New York?
1: Uh, originally from New Jersey. I would always go to New York just for business travel leisure. So like I would go there, Central Park, Fifth Avenue stores. But then I would always come back home in Jersey. Not far in Jersey,
0: but, you know, it was a uh, local trip. So you're familiar with the path train?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> the train everybody would take when the NJ Transit train uh, stops running.
0: Yeah, yeah. Weekends, nights, that kind of thing.
1: Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: That's funny. What did your parents do while you're growing up or what do they do now?
1: Yeah. My dad, he's a, a jeweler for Tiffany's. Oh, cool. Yeah. He's been doing that for 30 years. Uh, my mom was a school teacher, uh, er, retired many years ago. Uh, he's still finishing up his last few years at Tiffany's and he'll be retiring soon, too. But even before him, his father's, uh, well, his father and grandfather, they were jewelry designers for Cartier.
0: Wow. That's incredible. Did they, what kind of influence did they have on you or if at all?
1: Oh, it's funny. I was always showed the work, like the typical lost wax process, making rings, sculpting them, making them, um, setting stones and such. And as much as father always showed me these either artifacts or what he was currently working on, he always followed up with, don't ever get into this. It's super labor intensive and there's no money. So I'm sending you to school.
0: Yeah, that's uh, the apparel industry has very similar stories. Like <laughs> if if uh, if you want to make a million dollars in apparel, you have to spend six is kind of the joke. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. The odds are totally against you.
0: Right. Right. It used to be. That's
1: hilarious. Things have changed these days where it's like it's a completely new world for just meeting the market needs and building an audience. It's completely different in our favor now.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, um, whenever somebody asks me like, what advice do you have if, you know, when starting a company, I'm like, go be famous doing something else or, and, or somehow find out a way to build an audience and then launch a company to sell that audience products. Like that's just, it's foolproof at that point. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. You know, um, so with Tiffany, obviously they've been in the news a bit lately. Um, <laughs> what? Uh, so your your dad, he repairs jewelry. Is that what you said, or or is he into the watch thing?
1: He'll he'll do uh, variations. He'll work on new stuff. So something that needs uh, from a customer a stone set, uh, laser engraving, sized rings, bracelets, necklaces, all jewelry, no watches. Um, so he'll do that. He'll also do like old stock, which is let's just say a customer comes in, uh, repair work or adjusting. He'll also do that. Um, but what they really, I would say, utilize his skill set for is like setting stones. Mm-hmm. So that's like their money maker. Like they have these big precious stones. Um, because he has so much experience, they'll go to him, and then mm-hmm. he'll set the stone, and he could all, he could send it to the next guy for polishing or hand engraving and such.
0: Nice. Is he into watches at all?
1: You know, funny enough, no. And uh, it's crazy. The watch he bought in the 80s for 300 bucks. He got a 6263 uh, Daytona Rolex. Uh, yeah. And then he got for 300 bucks. And then when I started getting to watches like 10 years ago, I go, Dad, you know that watch he got. I'm like, I don't want to ruin it for you, but I know I will. It's worth back then. It was like 40. Now it's like 60 to 80. I said, it's worth a lot, Dad. It's special. He's like, ah, if I had known, I would have got a dozen of them. Needless to say, he, he likes watches, but in no way is he like a watch aficionado. He, he just likes your normal run-of-the-mill nice watches.
0: Right. What was your first watch, personally?
1: Ooh, oh, good question. Um, I had my fossils. And I think one of my first watches, I had like a LCD fossil. I had like the flames that would come up and down. I think I got that in the middle school. Yeah. And then I had like those other, they would literally just be quartz. The brand was just blank brand and quartz. And I think my grandpa would give me these watches still have them Um, nice and thin. And yeah, like your, your typical fossil quartz Um, even had a couple Lego watches back in the day. Cool. It, It had no influence on me though. I'll tell you, it was, it was cool but it never triggered anything it's strange I think everybody always says oh when I was six I had a watch and I knew I was gonna be a watch no you're six the whole world is exciting to you right you know for me it was it was one of many cool things and in no way did I know when I was a little kid that there was a hook from watches you
0: know Right, right. Yeah, I, I must admit, I was the exact same way. Like, I've always had a watch, but I was never like cognizant of the mayhem that I would get myself into later.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and a very valid point, I would say six year old being just enthralled by everything. <laughs> what uh, what was like, what, what were coming through the speakers back then? Like, what were you into music wise in high school?
1: Oh, God. High school was like Nirvana, Blink-182, Incubus.
0: Um, Sick.
1: <laughs> yeah, Panic at the Disco, like everything. And, and back then, it's like CD players. So you just have your stack of CDs. And then you would also burn from LimeWire and all these different things to your CDs. And then you played in your car. It was fun. I wish I yeah. still had some CDs.
0: Yeah, quick story. Yeah. Um, so I was working in Malibu a little over 10 years ago and you know, from time to time I would meet musicians and such. Um, and I was helping this one guy and when I was checking him out at the, at, you know, the cash wrap or whatever, I, I, I don't know what gave me the courage, but I was just kind of like, has anybody ever told you you kind of look famous? And he's like, he's like, yeah, who you got? And I was like, you kind of look like Jose the drummer from incubus and he goes, oh, that's funny. And I was like, yeah, obviously your name's not Jose, is it? And he goes, no. He's like, no, but that is funny, because I'm the drummer for Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> oh, wow. And I was like, oh my god, dude. He's like, hey, I'm Brad Wilk. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, man. He's like, "He's like, no, man, I've actually gotten that before. And I was like, no, it's just like, I'm, a, I'm actually a drummer. And he goes, well, then you should know who I am, dude. <laughs> no,
1: he's messing you know, with you at
0: that. But like back in the day, like Rage Against the Machine, like they didn't take photos, right? Like, I mean, it, I mean, you kind of know who Tom Morello is. He's bald, you know, he's kind of forward facing and obviously Zach, the lead singer. But like there were never like complete band photos readily available. They always just had like the imagery of like Che Guevara or like whoever. But so
1: Yeah, you had, you had MTV if they were that big on the, the TV or you'd have like the album covers with some like images of the guys. But still, it wasn't like today.
0: Right, right. No, exactly. But uh, he he was rad. So we ended up just like talking about drums and stuff for like 15 minutes. He's super
1: Wow, cool. that's cool. He gave you his time to just like hang out a bit.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it was super fun. Um, what were some of the hobbies you had in high school? Like what were you up to outside of school?
1: Oh, I was on my bike all the time digging jumps. So we would literally just dig holes as deep as we could. <laughs> jumps that were like three times the height of us. They would just go straight up. And so I was constantly outside in the woods, building jumps and just riding these every single day at my buddies.
0: And so this is a, a BMX bike.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we'd be like three bucks in our pocket and we'd know where all the cheap vending machines were. We would get like a bag of chips and you're just out from morning to night, just on your bike with your buddies. That, that was it.
0: That's sick. What were you riding? What kind of bike was it?
1: Um, So the early days were like the dinos. That's like middle school, high school. Yeah. When we got a little bit more serious, I think it was called FIT, F-I-T, FIT bikes. Okay. Um, And it was all about the materials. So like magnesium pedals, aluminum frames, bored out in certain areas, but not weak. Right. Yes. And even the style is like tight pants. So it wouldn't get caught in your chain, but it was like almost punk style. I mean, these guys were serious. It was it was good times.
0: It sounds like kind of early emo days. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Right about there. Maybe some taking back Sunday in there. Yeah. <laughs> That's
1: awesome. That's when we have the headphones with wires that would tuck underneath your shirt and then yeah. in your pocket.
0: Yeah, totally. The iPod Nano probably.
1: Oh, no. Even before that, it was just those generic MP3 players.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. you have to put
1: them on hold so you don't accidentally bump a button. <laughs>
0: That's amazing. Well, if I'm not mistaken, you're also a graduate of uh, New Jersey Institute of Technology, correct? Yes. What What made you decide to go there? Did you apply anywhere else?
1: Uh, I didn't know too much about school. And I applied to maybe two places, more just to please my parents. Right. Uh, again, I would still just ride my bike. All I cared about was just enjoying my time. No way did I want to um, do more school. It just wasn't interesting. So I said, all right, what do I like? Art all right, I'll apply for architecture. Um, I was like a C student. And when I got accepted to NJIT, it was more or less, uh, we have a new program for industrial design. We know you applied for architecture. We didn't get that. If you're interested, you can be one of the first people to try our industrial design program. Cool. So me and my mom are over there like blowing our eyes up. Like, oh, you actually got into school? Great. <laughs> and it went from hardly able to get into college to them reaching out to me as like, would you like to teach? And then I was like, top of my class. And you know, I made the most of it, I'd say.
0: Wow. That's incredible. You know, I meant to ask you, did you work at all in high school? Do you ever have a job in high school? Oh,
1: all the time. Yeah. My parents, they're real strict. If you're not working, uh, there's a problem. If you come up and downstairs without like a box in your hand of something, there's a problem. So uh <laughs> I helped my brother with a lawn care business when we were like 12, 13 years old. Uh I worked at Panera Bread. I worked at, you know, ice cream shops. I what did I do? I was pushing carts. I, I did all your, your typical jobs. There was no uh you weren't allowed to sit around and do nothing.
0: Right, right. So after college though, you got out. What was the first gig after college?
1: Junior year. I didn't even uh finish college. Junior year I had an internship at Mavada. Oh, amazing. So that was great. I got lucky working for them because working for Movado was like the most professional experience for anyone uh, at my age. And it was good because they gave me access to uh, working with their vendors, creating like the spec sheets for how the samples and eventual production would be. Um, And then, you know, like the simple mood boards and such. So it was good exposure for me.
0: Yeah, that's insane. What, um, what led you to Movado, or was there was there like a job board at school or something? Like, how'd you land there? Even from an application standpoint,
1: totally. It was just like on a whim. And again, I wasn't even interested. Like, I still wasn't a watch person at all. Huh. To be frank, I was in school, and I said, "Wow, any opportunity is a good one." It could have been toy designer for Toys Us at the time. I said, "Hey, this is great, <laughs> right?" But the issue was. They wanted somebody that had watch experience, which is funny for an intern um, because there's other schools that have watch design courses uh-huh. that are local. So I, I kind of lied and I saw that they had this opportunity and I spent like a day just dishing out watch designs, just illustrations, 3D models. I was in school. I could do it. And I basically said, like, here's my portfolio of all the watches that I've done. And I was like, "Shoot! Like it worked. Like they bit." And and they said, "Hey, we see your interest, and we love your skill set. And if you want to learn more, you can join us."
0: I was like, "All right, perfect." <laughs> That's amazing. So between Movado and starting Brew, did you have any other jobs, or is that kind of?
1: Oh yeah! Oh, other. I was in hustle mode. So Movado was only six months. After that, uh, I finished up school, and I started working as a essentially a licensed mass market watch designer. You ever go to like JC Penney's and there's like all these different random generic brands, Hello Kitty, like a Space Jam or like Coleman Outdoors, Jessica Simpson, Crayola, Under Armour, like you name it. There was me and I would create the brief. Like I get the overview be like, all right, Under Armour. What does Under Armour stand for? And then I'd create that brief I'd find materials. I'd design the watch. I'd work with uh, Asia 99% of the time. And I would create the samples. And then I'd go to the Under Armour licensor, the person that gives you access to make this. So here's my designs. And they'd give it the thumbs up or down. And then we would go to a Nordstrom, so to speak, or JC Penney, excuse me, so sorry. And uh, they make a purchase order. They'd say, oh, we'll take... 1,000, we'll take 10,000 and, you know, uh, these color choices. So then I understood not just design, selling, but what actually sells. Cause the Nordstrom buyer would say, well, gunmetal sells really good this time of the year. These are the specs size wise that are selling in our stores on the East Coast. Um, so tailor it down a bit and then we'll, we'll make an
0: order. Wow. So was that a challenge at all for you then or were cuz i mean it on one hand you're creating stuff creatively right but then on the other they're kind of telling you what to do right so oh, absolutely that, that's kind of a fine line so what how do, how did that feel to do business that way
1: It's great because they they give you what's essentially called design guidelines mm-hmm. essentially how to use their logo only colors that they'll accept right and you know, price ranges that you have to work within. So those constraints were essentially it. And for me, I, I understood manufacturing, but not to the extent that I do now. But I knew if I had to make a, a watch at cost of, I don't know, $30, I knew I could go only so far. And if I didn't understand, I was directly on the line with uh, Asia. And mm-hmm. they would say, hey, Jonathan, on a very personal note, great designs, but these screws, you can't use it. The case back, this won't work. X, y, and Z. Um, you can't do steel. you have to do an alloy. And so all these projects, I was learning what was possible and what wasn't. yeah, and i I did this for a year and a half. And then the story of where the next stage that changed my life was was with my girlfriend walking through Soho, New York watch store, right? What do you do with your girl? you You drag her in. say, hey I just don't look at this real quick. And it was just a little boutique generic watch store. Cool look. And the owner was in there. I said, hey, you know, it's cool. And I love talking about watches. I love your watches. These are great. Well, can you tell me about them? He, goes, he tells me and he says, why are you so interested? I said, you know, actually, uh, I work on some watch designs. Nothing at this level. These are really nice. He goes, I'm looking for a watch designer. Would you be interested? And he got me excited because I, I think I was like 22 years old at the time. Right. 22 year old kid walking in the store and he says, You know, I don't have a lot of money. I'll I'll pay you a little bit, but for the most part, I'll fly you out to Basel, Switzerland shows. I'll fly out to Japan, China, Switzerland. I'll, I'll take you to all these places and introduce you to all my vendors, as well as the watch industry, like head honchos. I learned so much in two years. I also built this guy's brand dude it was it was so crazy to the point where this guy was also trying to hustle He's like john can you like photoshop us press passes to get into the press lounge of basel world <laughs> so like it, it's far basel world doesn't exist anymore so i could say like i photoshopped like f- like fake documents to get us up there that was oh, me with God. like joe thompson i think at the time he worked for like watch time and what i i knew what i was doing i knew i was going to help him but i knew eventually i would merge out and do my own thing so I made sure everyone knew like hey my name is Jonathan and I'm interested in watch design I even met Jack Forrester on on this trip and we were at like the Three Kings uh it's like a famous bar out there and I said hey uh Jack and I I forget where Jack was he was definitely not at Hodinky. and I said you know just making face-to-face intros like that I ended up following up with these guys like five plus years later, like, Hey, I have my own thing. Now, if, if you have any interest in sharing this or taking a closer look, it was great meeting you at these shows in the past.
0: And so, yeah. That's amazing. It was very, I was lucky. That's incredible. So when you launched brew, I believe is 2015 is when you yes. guys, Yeah. So what uh, can you walk us through sort of like what that impetus was or like what made you take the leap kind of thing?
1: So that was two years working for this boutique brand. um, And I saw a lot of his failures. So the reason that I wanted to do my own thing was for two main reasons. I saw all the bottlenecks and, and failures of his company and others. And then I also had this desire to... Do something more personal for myself self-expression right uh i had zero business knowledge i didn't understand really how to operate any business i didn't understand marketing that well uh, but i knew i just wanted just uh an out a way to express myself so before leaving him i said do you mind if i keep all your same manufacturers and, and xyz and he essentially said good luck because this guy was like half a million in debt and he he had all the money in the world and he lost the game, so to speak. So when I said that to him, he said, yeah, go for it. So I did a Kickstarter and it was in 2015. I look at it now, super amateur hour. Right? I took all my own photos. I wrote my own story. It was honest and from the heart. And like any startup, it's who, who supports you, your friends and family. right? It's not, not real, but it is. And it's crazy. Uh, I didn't expect it to work. And I never expected it to be a business. I think I only thought two steps ahead of I make something and share it. And I will feel relief, so to speak, I will feel like, uh, like uh, fulfilled. But then it started to snowball where people were saying, Well, this is great, Jonathan, what's next? And I said to myself, Oh, shit, man, I never." I never thought I had to create an extension from this. I thought this was just my uh, one shot of expression. And like any business, you have your ebbs and flows. First, the air broke even. That was like interesting, right? I think I I, I made like ninety k, and it cost me like ninety k to get there, right? Like you said with the t-shirts, it's like it cost a fortune to just stay above water, right? And then the biggest mistake I learned was not having a line extension or an evolved model quick enough. Watches, they take about a year from the moment that you say, these are my specs, getting a sample and then production. takes about a year. So I said, oh, shoot, I was really in the red because all that time that goes by that you don't make money, you're essentially losing money. So then I learned and it was like... First year, great. Second year, static. Third year, launched a watch. It sold very, very slow. Even my parents, I was still living at home in my bedroom at the time. Everything was out of my bedroom. And third year, my parents were saying like, you should really apply for like a job. I applied to Fossil. I met with these two headhunters. I applied to Fossil and they said, why do you want to work here? I said, "You know, I did my own thing, self-expression. I've worked for other watch companies. And I remember they, they were so insulting to me. They said, why do you think you just, dis- I asked for 75K, 75K. And they, they laughed me out of the room. They said, well, what makes you think you're worth 75K? I said, I have all this experience. They said, yes, but you're still so young. I said, okay. And they laughed me out of the room. They wouldn't even take the same elevator with me. Okay, so uh, even my parents are like, you know, you're in the red, Jonathan, get a real job still. And then I said, okay, I just want to do one last hoorah. And I launched this chron- this new chronograph. Yeah. And in one month it did over a hundred K worth of sales. Wow. And, and so that did incredible. And then it continued to exponentially grow from there. And, and then it was, what was it? I think it was year six that I started doing like seven figures and then it started going like now we're in year seven. So it's like, it's been multiplying ever since, but it's like the difference between the people that make it or don't make it. I would assume is when you get to those critical points of nearly failing and you say to yourself, should I throw in the towel or continue, but you have to be so strategic. Time is of the essence, money, and and then like does it actually make sense or are you just beating a dead horse you know
0: yeah there's so many there's so much there to unpack first of all like the creative outlet part of it that you mentioned like i jokingly call it my creative vomit like i just you know how sometimes you know you've had a little Bit too much to drink, maybe, and you know, if I throw up, I'll feel better. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like it's almost like that, but for creativity, for me. So like, I've designed stuff and and had stuff made just to get it out of my brain. Like I can't let this stuff fester and exist in my brain. Like it has to become like a physical object for me for some reason. I don't know why, but um, so I totally understand what you mean as far as the Kickstarter's concern. I'm I am curious. Like, what was sort of the elevator speech at the time? Like, what what was the story?
1: Yeah, it was, it was an honest story where when I worked for these other companies, I worked at the cafe. I enjoyed it. I said, brew watches is all about enjoying and saving your time over a simple coffee, whether by yourself or with friends, loved ones, whoever it is. It's just about enjoying your time with subtle inspiration from espresso machines embedded into the watches. And that was it. It was so simple. It was, I would say, a little too poetic. If you didn't know me and you're right. just random Bob, you'd be like, nice story. It's all right. But what actually, like, the hook was the visual. Oh, this has like a cool vintage aesthetic with subtle uh, espresso coffee details. Okay. I can get that. I could dig that. And that right. was enough, enough.
0: That's awesome, man. So like, how did you, you, you said you didn't know anything about running a business and or marketing. So how were you marketing that first piece?
1: Oh gosh, that was all word of mouth. I was literally going on like Vista print, getting the most affordable postcards. And I was going to cafe to cafe in New York City, hoping that word of mouth, whether the cafe owners would buy it, buy it as gifts, share it with their patrons. But I didn't realize at the time, these guys are the hungriest trying to make, you know, their own money to sustain their own business. These, these are coffee shops they're making, you know, ends meet. It's not, it's not like the most lucrative business. Also baristas, not the most lucrative business. So although it was on brand for brew, that that wasn't my target audience. They would buy, but not as easily as others. So who were those others? And I learned it was People that were design savvy, people that go to the museum, uh, young professionals working in the city. And then that actually led me to go meet these wash enthusiasts in the city. They could buy my watch. Not that I was trying to sell it to them. I just wanted opinions, but it was an impulse buy. They would say my watches were too cheap, charge more. Mm-hmm. So the, the counter to that was these baristas are like, you know, can I pay you in five payments? I said, wait a minute, this, this, this is not sustainable. I, I can't reach out to a market that can't afford the product. Right. So what's the middle zone like?
0: So how do you target the people now?
1: Uh, so everything I do now it's visual, like, okay, the story and branding, it's always visual. It's always the f- photographs I take or now I contract photographers to help me to tell that story of enjoying your time over coffee. Um, but do it in like a professional uh, classic way. I don't like contrived or forced images like a cup of coffee and a watch. You have to do it in a classic, kind of like a Mr. Porter, clean, classic way. And that's the visual I like to tell. Um, But on like the real backend, uh, I learned, again, no marketing background. I, I learned a lot about the analytics, how to read analytics, click throughs, where these websites Uh, taking people, are people clicking on my website? Are they clicking off? How long are they on my site? Why do they click off? You know, track their cookies. Are they clicking to a review or are they just going to another watch brand? If so, why? And then you play detective, right? So you try to understand what are your your audience members thinking as they're going through the the purchase channel, so to speak. And so I say to myself, okay, well, if they're clicking off, Maybe you need more credibility. Maybe you need more watch reviews. Uh, maybe they can't handle in the person uh, to get a good feel for it. Um, maybe you should have a pop-up show to give that uh, physical engagement with the product. Sure. So it was it was a lot of trial and error to get that honed in just right.
0: What uh, What software do you use to track those analytics?
1: Oh, just the back end of like a simple Squarespace and Google Analytics.
0: Gotcha. Cool.
1: It's, it gives you enough from like geography to important pages to uh like websites they came from they click to um and then it's just basic information and it's really your duty to decide what you want to do with that information
0: yeah for sure well you know i wanted to talk to you a little bit about the design uh you spoke about the new chronograph which i love personally um there's a lot of depth to the dial between like the markers and the sub dials and things of that nature. Um, to speak also in, in kind of to couple that with like a manufacturing type of question, um, do you get all these bits and bobs from different manufacturers or are they all kind of coming from the same place? Cause my t-shirts, for example, have like my neck labels come from one vendor and the fabric comes from a different vendor and things like that. Is it similar with your dials and, and cases and such?
1: Yeah. There's a different vendor for each part. And, and that's because in the beginning, one of the failures I made, I had one guy do it all. Right. Not cost effective. They're going to charge you a premium without you even realizing it. Sure. So over time I said to myself, why is the printing bound the dials? Why are the hands not aligned correctly? So mm-hmm. I found a separate dial, hand case, um, manufacturer, also even down to the packaging. I separated them. And although it's I guess technically more complicated it gives me better oversight on costs timelines um also quality because if anything goes wrong i've got the hand factory like this is this is your forte guys you need to remake this if i go to the guy that handles everything uh and i say hey the hands are not right it's just an extra step and he might even charge me for his time it's 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 a nightmare um, so that was a, a trick I learned. And I was also told by uh, a mentor, separate your vendors and that's your best bet. Also, if you have to remove one, let's say your your dial guy's no good. It's just one part you pull from the line and then you just find a new one and insert it. It's, it's much safer than being held up with one person that controls the whole operation.
0: Sure. Who's your mentor?
1: Uh, so that was a close friend that I actually used to work with. Um, remember, I told you I was working at like those mass market uh, watches for like JCPenney and Nordstrom.
0: Sure.
1: And this was actually a manufacturer that worked in Asia, so they have offices in Hong Kong, and they were kind of like my go-to. And they keep it frank with me. They'd be like, "Jonathan, you're you're an average American young boy coming in. They're gonna they're gonna rip you a new one on pricing." quality they're going to take you for everything these are the things that you need to know and if you get any messages that you're suspicious of or you're skeptical send it to me i'll confirm it with my people and you can move ahead so i kind of had support from all around the world
0: what was um what was something that he said that like if um they're gonna like rake you over the coals like what was something that they would have done that with
1: oh of course pricing because um when you come into the watch industry, you're new, you have zero credibility and they don't know if you're going to do a one production run and take off. The most important thing is that they realize you're in the business for the long run. You get better pricing that way. So when you come in fresh, they're going to give you an absolute premium. uh, And that's because they don't know if you're going to make more of them. You could lie through your nose, but they still don't trust you. So when I come through and I say, Hey, I'm working with um, John Smith over here. They're going to say, oh, he's we, we've been working with him for the past 30 years. You're good. You're good. So I have the same amount of credibility as the person that's been working with them for decades. And, and yeah. then they'll treat me different in terms of uh, price fairness, quality, and overall communication. Uh, communication is mm-hmm. the biggest.
0: Yeah, for sure. That chronograph you released is called the metric. How did it get its name?
1: Uh, so that watch has a lot of measuring uh, increments on it and okay. I was saying to myself the name came after the design I said to myself this is all about uh, timing an espresso shot so that's your 25 to 35 seconds uh, the markers I put on the 9 o'clock sub dial I believe it's every 10 minute increments I did that uh, naturally it's from vintage watches but more importantly I had older folks that said hey John your past chronographs are just lines I can't tell what minute marker it's on could you just make that a little bit more um, clear. So that's why I integrated those 10 minute uh, segments on the subdial. And then the more I realized it, the more I was like, wow, this watch is kind of like a measuring device, not just for time, but like measuring elapsed time. So I said, all right, it's like, it's like a measuring tool. What, what is a measuring tool? It's like some type of, okay, me- metric. Um, but of course I went through every other terrible name to get to that tool measuring uh idea
0: right the thesaurus was out
1: (laughs) oh my god terrible and naming stuff because you want it to be neutral enough that the average person can pick it up and put their own uh perspective on it their own interpretation and it's not it's not going to be misleading it's not gonna um discuss them or make them feel odd like if i called it the ladybug watch they'd be like ah it feels like feminine or weird it's uh You can really turn a person off or on with a simple name. And I said, this is like the perfect, safe, conservative, defined name that really represents the watch in a nice way that's memorable. Perfect. It's quick. It's sharp. You could say it real quick. You could spell. Great. Let's do it.
0: Yeah, it's phonetic. All that good stuff. Yeah. That's cool. Why that size? It's 36 millimeters yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Was that, uh, is that movement related at all? Or is it just. No, that was just the overall uh, dimension that
1: I said to myself uh, watches for myself are more comfortable when they're smaller. I also see trending watches getting smaller. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think big watches are, are going to be the thing for the next 10 years. Just everything is about like comfort, convenience, and then also reaming back, like harping back to. Older pieces, uh, especially for my brand, I, I like to have that vintage uh, nostalgic effect uh, mm-hmm. on the designs. So I said, all right, if you're going to even stick with that vintage uh, aesthetic, the dimensions really speak to that the best. Yeah. Also, realistically, it does open it up to more people wearability. If you have sure. like a large Breitling, you've just outcasted uh, so many people that could have purchased it.
0: Yeah, Totally. Can you describe the Mecha Quartz movement that it's got?
1: Yeah. So the metric has the VK68 movement. It actually has a three o'clock, 24 hour timer, but I removed that, it goes to that. Uh, so the Mecha Quartz essentially is run by a battery at a high frequency. So you'll see that the main sweeping chrono has a nice, smooth sweeping seconds. Um, but then when you stop it, it snaps back. That chronograph, Function and the snapback motion—that's all characteristic from its mechanical side, which is the the mechanical part from the Mecca quartz. Mm-hmm. So there's a little clutch that drives the mechanics that snaps it back. That's all mechanical. But the rest of the watch for time telling is all battery operated. So then you have the perk of just accuracy. Pick it up and run with it.
0: Right. The case design is somewhat that, you know, TV set, right? The seventies television. Uh, Was that something that you just loved? I know like, for example, like the, the perpetual calendar chronographs from Patek, like there was only the one that was kind of that seventies TV set that is extremely rare, I guess, by all accounts these days to come across. But what, what was the design philosophy and or draw to that shape?
1: Yeah, I, I always like to stand out and be different, but not just for the sake of being different. Uh, I realized something that I started out with, um, when I came out of the gates in 2015, I also had a cushion style case.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then something I realized early on is like a recognizable brand DNA. So, it, it, dumbing it down, it's like being the square cushion design brand. Right. And sticking with that, um, now it's difficult because most people don't wear square watches. You could say, well, everyone has an Apple watch. It's different from mechanical or fashion watches. Most people wear typically round watches. It's it's just what they're familiar with. And people buy what they're familiar with. It's less intimidating. Mm -hmm. But I said to myself, if I can stay in this square case silhouette game long enough, I can build... A DNA that is distinctive, that people desire, and um, it could be something that can just be so unique amongst the other watches. Yet, the best part is, I, I figure this out through like my second watch, if I stay with this vintage-esque style, then it's appropriate. You notice if you stay anywhere from like 60s to 70s watches, they all have that that TV style. Mm-hmm. And I said this is perfect, so it makes sense um, to be different, to be recognizable. It makes sense for the era that I'm working to harp on, and yeah, that w- that was the most important thing was to be different, but not just for the sake of being different. But it's it's difficult because again. Most people wear round watches because it's what they're comfortable with. But, you know, it takes time.
0: So regarding the thickness, this chronograph's 10.75 mm. Now, obviously, that's going to be attributed to the movement thinness, I guess, as opposed to thickness in this case. Uh, Now, was that a goal of yours to keep the watch thin? So I guess, did the design stem from the movement or did the movement stem from the design?
1: Um, I knew I wanted a chronograph movement. Now the options are always mechanical, like manual, automatic, or quartz. And the mecha quartz was perfect because of uh, two main factors: thinness and cost. If mm. I was to do this with a mechanical movement, some people ask, um, then instead of three ninety five, the cost would be probably around twenty five hundred at least. Right.
0: Um, to to like survive long term. And you'd have what? Like a Valjoux 7750
1: or? Yeah, Valjoux. You could do uh, Salita has some hand wound movements as well. Uh, I think they're like SW510. Mm-hmm. Um, they're beautiful. But the other, like there's, a, there's another third part to that, which is quartz versus mechanical. Mechanical and automatic watches are more troublesome in the long term. They require mm-hmm. more maintenance. They're a little bit more fragile. Um, so as a watch brand, my most important you know, from a business perspective and from a pride perspective is uh, put out a watch that will last a long time that you're not going to have to worry about servicing frequently. That's just, I don't think that's good business. And there are watch brands that do it. It's part of their their business, but it's, it's not a good startup business. I'm not in the, the repair business. We have right. it available, but uh, the returns and repairs, it, it's more troublesome. And if you can avoid that and make a great product just the same, then that's actually where the courts came in.
0: Sure. You mentioned earlier having kind of design parameters to stay within, you know, guidelines and such. Uh, what role did color play for you? Because, you know, the metric is it's got two variants, right? There's one that's a little more subtle, subdued with the steel dial. Uh, and then the other one's far more vibrant, let's say. Uh <laughs> What uh, what kind of parameters did you put on yourself, if any, when, when, you know, approaching color?
1: Yeah, it's something that it has to have an intelligence to it. So I was literally searching 60s, 70s radios, industrial design radios and products from the past. And you get these baby blues, these mint greens. You see it on their irons. You see it on their, uh, their typical products of that era. Sure. So it was a matter of finding the right colors that would work together, also Mm -hmm. functionally um, because when you look at your watch, you want to have a clear um, visual understanding of the time that's being told. Yeah. The legibility. Yeah. But I'll tell you the funniest part is sometimes I get, I wouldn't say scared, but so there's part of me that's designer. Then there's part of me that's businessman. I honestly thought people were going to be afraid of the color and they were going mm. to buy the silver steel watch. So I actually made more of the steel at the time. I had no idea that people were going to be so brave and buy the color, not only just buy it, but like demand it. And it sold out so fast. I said to myself, Oh my God, who who could ever guess that people would be so brave, but that spoke such loud uh, words about what people were interested in. And it was just that, They want a fun watch that they can enjoy. They don't really care about your safe standard black and white watch anymore. They want something that's different, unique, and it works well. It was balanced, but I I didn't think people would be that brave.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, with, I mean, yes, you can call it brave, I guess, but I think it's also just, if you're going to be different by way of TV set design, for example, cushion case, and yeah, why not go nuts with color to boot? Because it's like you go big or go home at this point, you know what I'm saying? like you know that from your b m x days like <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, you gotta commit, <laughs> yeah, yeah, huck it, you know, like like yeah. let's just do it, you know so i i I think it's cool, man, I mean, I definitely think the colored variant is uh is is my favorite even and and look at me, I'm in gray and black, like I mean this is what you see is what you get, you know with me usually for for that. But then again, that's also why I like colors on watches from time to time because I like statement pieces, right? Like, so it's either your watch or your shoes or, you know, what have you. Um, so I think it's brilliant. How did, how did you land on the price? I mean, aside from just like, you know, standard markup procedure, like what did price mean to you?
1: It was, it was a mix of standard markup. People are very proud. Sometimes I say, well, charge for your time designing and thoughtfulness. Yeah. And, uh, I still don't pat myself on the back just yet as a designer. Yeah, there's an absolute ton of time that goes into research development, X, Y, and Z. But I charge uh, with a few things in mind. What would I personally be comfortable in spending Mm -hmm. without being intimidated? Because there's that line of being intimidated. And realistically, that's your abandoned checkout right there. You're going to take it in the cart. You're going to go, do I really want to spend $1,600 on this quartz chronograph right now? right then you're going to you're going to compare apples to apples this doesn't make sense there's going to be the emotional value but there's a cap on that right so how how far is that cap and what's that that balance of comfort and then also where do you find the balance of value proposition are people getting the best watch for this price point i honestly think they're getting a lot more watch for the the price i know i can charge a lot more but for me even though it's year seven i still treat this as a startup the more people that are wearing my watches and buying it and sharing it the better it is for the long run and and that's where i'm aiming for the long run so if i charge a super attainable price which is where it is now well more people will be wearing it and sharing it and it's a big world the more people that are enjoying this they just need to have a taste they will come back and they will be interested to, to listen and hear more about the future of brew watch designs. Yeah. My mission is to always create that a bit of attainability to keep people in the circle. Now, that's a super affordable watch. I do want to create more high-end luxury pieces, everything from the movement to the design and how it's made, where it's made, X, Y, and Z. I think it's just a track record of creating something unique that people love, that feel like they got something special, especially these days, the demand is so high and nobody can keep up production wise. Right. Uh, I I think it's a good long-term vision to create that attainability. Now, I mean, it's not for every business. Some are the complete opposite. Some people would say, charge an absolute fortune. You'll create that value proposition. I don't, I, I try to keep it fair. And give everyone a taste so that they they really see the capabilities of of what I can put out.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. You've um you've got quite a bit of Hodinky coverage this year. I noticed, um, which is fabulous. Congratulations. Um, their audience is obviously huge. Um, how did some of that come about? I'm only curious because it seems James, who's been on this show and has become you know a bit of a friend, great guy he seems to be the go-to guy to write about you. So are you guys pretty tight or is that just coincidental or?
1: that was a coincidental because yeah. I think James at the time was uh, handling most of their editorial uh, write-ups at the time. Okay. And so James, he essentially came to me and said, Hey John, I'm the guy for the job. Uh, we heard about your new watch coming out. Uh, essentially. Can you, can you tell me a little bit about this? Uh, I wish it was like beers and hanging out, but he's out in Canada. So we never really had that relationship. Yeah. but I think this was a good opportunity just to kind of uh, you know break the ice get to know each other a little bit more yeah but yeah th- this was definitely like the first real year of being covered by Hodinki which was nice um, it was, it's interesting right you, you have the the bubble of like watch enthusiasts and and for me the most successful I guess notion is when we get outside of that bubble so I love when watch enthusiasts share it. But for me, it's it's introducing people that would never even think about checking out watches before this.
0: Totally. So
1: I think the biggest success for Brew is bringing new people into this watch atmosphere.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that, that seems to be the pattern that happens. And it's interesting because they never just buy one watch. They seem to collect all of them. And so something I've also learned is that Brew... Is essentially becoming like a collectible brand. It's affordable, sure, but I don't make a million of them. And I think they realize it. I think they realize it's coming from my hands that there's something unique and special here. And I don't. I don't even think they think, hey, it'll be worth something one day. I think it's just to be part of um, like a, a special design movement uh, of of this special era of, of micro brands.
0: Yeah. You know, I think um, there's something to be said there for even standard H because like when people buy my T-shirts, like they know that I'm the one packing the boxes. You know, they know that I'm the one writing that handwritten thank you note, you know, that that whole that whole deal, which I'm sure you can identify with. Um, Are you still a one man band primarily? I know your mom was helping early days, but what's the team size like now?
1: So it's been a one man band for seven years. And then just last week I I hired somebody full time sick to help me with uh, communications. It's just a, there's incredible amount of uh, people reaching out. So I just hired somebody full time to help me with that.
0: That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. It's a, it's a scary time because it's like, Oh God, now I'm responsible for somebody else as well.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Like quite literally. And you know, whether that person moves to be closer to the office, I just opened an office too. Um, you, you do feel that responsibility, but it's like a good fire underneath you to say like, all right, now I need to push that much harder to succeed, not just for myself, but for this person as well. And that, I mean, it's it's natural growth, I guess, you know, whether it's the watch business or apparel or whatever it is, it, it seems to be the the natural pattern that happens.
0: Yeah, totally. Let's talk cars here. Um, you're sitting recording this <laughs> in an Aston Martin Vantage. Is this the eight cylinder? Yes. What year is the car? 2019. And the outside color is dark, I'm assuming.
1: Yeah, it's all black.
0: Oh, black on black.
1: And then black on black. Yep, yep.
0: Nice, man. Are you enjoying it? It's
1: an aggressive car. I love it to death. It's an aggressive car, it is fast.
0: Okay, so I'm a huge Aston Exhaust Note fan. I, I think they just sound incredible. Yeah. Um, what was the first car you ever had?
1: Ah, uh, I had a Mustang GT. Oh, okay. I won it for free in a raffle. What?
0: <laughs> so let me get this straight: cars fall in your lap, jobs fall in your lap. Uh... <laughs>
1: <laughs> Put out good, you get good.
0: Yeah, you know, it's yeah for sure hundred percent. So where'd you go from the Mustang GT?
1: I sold that and I got a Honda S 2000.
0: Did you like chip it and do the whole deal? Cause that was a really fast car.
1: It was fast. I never did anything to modify it.
0: Okay.
1: But I put it back to stock because stock, it felt so tight on the road. It was good.
0: Cool. So what led you to, to Aston? Cause I mean, that's definitely, um, it's a I don't know how to describe this. I mean aside from like, you know, the connection to James Bond and such, it it's such a understated classic sports car.
1: Yeah, Aston Martin's a scary car to even get into, especially like the newer ones cost-wise because one, value proposition, you want to talk about that. They've all plummeted, right? Now the market's changing, but they plummeted. A car that was worth 120 drops to like 40k. Right. In a matter of years, that was scary. Um, they would also be prone to breaking down high maintenance costs. Like, why would you ever want to put yourself in that position? Right. Um, the car I had before this. So realistically, before brew, I, I lived at home. I lived in, my parents had a room for me. Uh, I had $1,500 to start brew. So I had no money. I lived at home. I started brew. I started making a little bit of money, spending money. Um, but again, I had, I had no actual funds. It was kind of like the story of selling a paperclip to get a book and a book to get a chair. And, and, and so it was literally like starting from nothing. Like I had a good home, but I had no money. Right. Incrementally over the years, I became so money savvy with where I would put it for the business that I started doing better and better and better. Um, uh, my first like real treat to myself was, uh, uh, Porsche 911. Okay. <laughs> minty one. It was a 2004. It was an older one. Yeah. But it was like a minty black one. And I got that one year ago because I, I made sure like business was sound. I had everything checked out. Like I was good. I wasn't being irresponsible. Everything had its dues paid in for in advance.
0: So this was, so this was the last 996 or the first 997?
1: It was the nine nine six. Everyone's afraid of.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, because they're afraid of the IMS bearing failing and then the engine failing. Right. But I put that car up from I bought it nineteen thousand miles and I put it up to, I believe around thirty five thousand miles. Never had any issues besides changing uh, plugs and coil pack, doing the oil. That car was so good to me. Sweet. And it was. A few months ago, that the market was hot. It's all relative, but it was hot. So I said, you know what? It's a nice car. It's very tame. It's a six cylinder. You're not going to, you know, blast off on this thing. So I wanted something a little bit more punchy, newer, punchy. Yes. And I said, all right, what what are we looking at? Ferrari will kill me
0: (laughs) financially.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Gosh. And Lamborghini, every, I don't want to say bad things about the owners, but It's a lot of those older men that just, it's flaunting, right? So I wanted something discreet, but also a monster. And so I landed on the Vantage. And this was just, it was a good point to get rid of the Porsche financially. So this made sense. And there's absolutely no regret. And then I would say, to put this in context, I used to race Ducati Superbikes. So like the Panagallis when I had sold those, I felt like nothing can ever give me that same feeling. Porsche won't come close. you're going like almost 200 miles an hour between one stoplight. It's like nothing can give you that, that thrill. The Vantage comes close.
0: (laughs) Wow. So you, you've had a Panigale. Which one did you have? I had the
1: 1199 Panigale. And then I, after that, I got a V2. Um, So they're both, like a thousand cc liter bike.
0: Did you have the Tricolore? No, no, no. Those are okay. nice.
1: I, I didn't have that.
0: My buddy had the 1199 nine nine Tricolore, and it was just—it's just so beautiful. I mean, you can't mess with Ducati, man. I mean, they're just no, gorgeous bikes.
1: If if you could park that in like your living room and just stare at it,
0: like hundred percent.
1: You know, that's yeah. the dream.
0: <laughs> that would that would be a garage queen because I, I I've never owned a, a motorcycle. I've always either dated and or married a woman that uh, <laughs> would be like, no, uh, no bikes because yeah, the relationship's over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: They want somebody that's going to be around for a little while.
0: Yeah, so um, what so what are you up to hobby-wise these days, like outside of cars and watches?
1: I'll tell you, uh, I've never been busier in my life. So these <laughs> days, it's really like wake up at seven and for, for work and then work doesn't shut off like midnight. It's really yeah. around the clock. It's hard to find time. And now I'm understanding the whole, uh, entrepreneurial, like go to the gym to clear your mind. Right. Um, so the car for me is my one outlet right now. I have my girlfriend. I love seeing her. So she, that gives me my emotional break as well. But the car is like the only, uh, outlet time-wise, uh, away from work these days.
0: You know, it's funny. I ride, uh, bicycles, not motorcycles, as I said. Um, and I heard a quote recently that cause I just got back into mountain bikes and so I ride road and mountain now. And it, the, the quote was ride road bikes to think about your problems and ride mountain bikes to forget about them.
1: Oh, that's a good quote. <laughs> which,
0: which is, which is so spot on cause you just can't think about anything other than the moment when you're mountain biking. You know what I mean? You just have to constantly be paying attention to your environment, which I guess you could argue there's like the epitome of a meditation, right? Like there's nothing more present than doing something like that. So do you go often, you know, I don't ride. I actually, as of late I have not been riding at all just because I've been so busy with work and it takes so much time. I mean, to really get out and get in a good ride. I mean, I want to be out for three, four hours, you know, like I don't want to be, it's not a 30 minute run, you know what I mean? So what um, kind of bikes do you have? Uh, mountain bike. I have a Trek Fuel EX 9.8. And then um, my road bike is a giant TCR um, Pro Disc Zero, I think is the the trim. But um, both great bikes. Love them to death. Um, bang for your buck on both the cords, I would say. Um, yeah, super fun for sure. Awesome. What uh, Do you have a Grail car or are you sitting in it? A- sitting in it <laughs> that's you know it,
1: it's it's so strange um you want these things and then you finally get them and there's part of you like all right i'm satisfied and then the other human factor is like all right what's next i can't think of a what's next right now nor right. should i um it's it's uh another like food for thought is like i i like to think i'm simple and my girlfriend always laughs at me when i say that because i'm like getting these things uh When I get this, you do become a little numb to it. And I try to remind myself that you don't need these things, Right, but they're nice. It's like like a teeter totter. It's like, you don't need this, you've done it. And I feel like part of me is trying to like get this out of my system while I'm young. But uh, yeah, I'm trying to simplify my life. Not, (laughs) it doesn't really show at the moment, but I would like to eventually just, uh, yeah, simplify my life, enjoy my work. no need for ridiculous vehicles.
0: <laughs> well, at least you're simplifying it by way of not collecting cars and finding ways to store them. And you know what I mean? At least you're, you are you just have the one, I'm assuming. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was actually thinking to myself, if I ever move away, I would definitely open up like an exotic car garage and that would feed my uh, frenzy with other people's vehicles.
0: <laughs> right, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, 100%. Well, you mentioned your new office. What else is uh, next for Brew? Um, where Where is the office, by the way?
1: So it's in Hoboken, New Jersey, actually. Cool. Great spot right next to the ferry to shoot into the city. If I ever have other meetings out there. Sure. I got, it's a thousand square feet, huge space. And it's already filled up with just everything from shipping supplies and product. Amazing. Perfect picture would have a watchmaker in there a few times a week helping me with Um, servicing uh, another person to help me with uh, fulfillment. I do have to play catch up with design because it's been a busy year. Yeah. like I said before, that will absolutely kill you if if you don't keep up with like new variations. Yeah. And I feel, and I I assume a lot of other business owners feel this way after doing it for some time, more confident to try new wild designs that might be straying from the norm, pretty hardcore. Sure, um, but it's definitely like self-fulfillment, happiness, excitement. So I'm going to be trying a lot of new wicked things.
0: Can people drop by the office and check you out, or is it kind of closed to the public kind of thing? Or
1: close to the public right now? I'm like working on a security system for like cameras and sensors. Just <laughs> sure. I want to I want to make sure before I, the address is public that everything's locked up uh, safely. Totally. Eventually, it's going to be like it's it's a huge space that we can have like small group of folks by to, to check out the watches and talk
0: shop very cool now do you collect other watches or are you just rocking your own stuff
1: um that's a great question what do I have yeah I have other watches it's, I'm not a huge collector I love shopping and getting so close to pulling the trigger and then not doing that <laughs> So John you got too many watches as it is um what do I look at typically uh, I like old vintage watches that have been like worn and torn and just absolutely beaten like old solid gold royal oaks that the dials that used to be like a champagne color are turning like a brassy yellow. Those are pretty darn cool. Yeah. Look at those old Enicar. like where they sherpa's, where you see the, the font, the text that they use, real sharp, cool. They have like these lollipop hands on some of them.
0: Yeah. I think Eric wind sells a few of those from time to time.
1: Oh, he's got such nice watches. Yeah. He does. He does. So I I like to watch from afar. Um, Nice. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That's cool, man. Well, listen, I just wrapping up. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's, it's great to get the FaceTime as well uh, inside the vantage, no less. Um, Super cool. I'm, I'm flying to New York tonight as a matter of fact. Um, So maybe one of these times we could, we could definitely meet up and grab an espresso. I'd love to
1: would love to. Yeah, yeah. Let me know. Let me know if you yeah. need anything out here.
0: Definitely. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Jonathan. This was super enjoyable for me. Um, really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Yeah, Wesley. Dude, seriously. It means a lot to me. Uh, good luck. And let me know when you get to New York if you need anything.
0: Awesome, man. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. I'd like to thank Jonathan once again. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I'm absolutely looking forward to grabbing an espresso shot with you sometime in the city. Major thanks goes to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful, as always, for providing the theme check, as well as to Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Stay tuned in another two weeks. We'll be back with another show. Take care of yourselves and each other. Ciao.